This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. The crucial issues that really matter for our lives and for our children's lives and future generations are not even being discussed in the election campaign. Just not discussed. The worst policy, the worst crime of the Trump administration are the climate policy and the nuclear weapons policy. Those just swamp everything else in significance. Is anybody talking about them on the campaign trail? The really critical things are off the agenda. That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on threats to peace and the planet, part one of a special two-part program. Why are so many people all over the world out in the streets demanding change? What are the root causes of revolt? What about U.S.-Syria policy and the betrayal of the Kurds and BDS and Palestine? How do we overcome sectarian differences? Why are Americans so afraid? Eco-disaster and nuclear war threaten human existence. The former garners some attention because of the surge in youth-led activism, but the latter is out of sight, even though the dangers are escalating. The U.S. pulling out of the INF Ballistic Missile Treaty and new Pentagon hypersonic weapons increase the possibility of catastrophe. And what about impeachment and the 2020 election? These are just some of the topics Noam Chomsky talks about in this exclusive two-part interview. Noam Chomsky, one of the greatest intellectuals of this era, practically invented the field of linguistics. In addition to his pioneering work in that field, he has been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. At almost 91, he is the scholar-activist par excellence. As rock star Bono called him, he is the rebel without a pause. I've been privileged over the years to have done many alternative radio programs with him, as well as a series of books. Our latest is Global Discontents. I talked with Noam Chomsky at Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona, on November 4th, 2019. The occasion was a celebration of the Progressive Magazine's 110th anniversary. Well, good evening, Tucson. It's wonderful to see all your smiling, most of you are smiling, and beautiful faces. Uh, it's an honor to be here and to be with uh, someone that I have been working closely with for uh, many, many decades and who is actually responsible for my radio program called Alternative Radio because when I first became familiar with his work, I was really surprised that Chomsky was nowhere to be heard on community radio stations, public radio stations across the country. And so I wanted to rectify that. And that was the beginning of um, alternative radio. And we have over 250 recordings of uh, Noam in our 
vast audio archive, lectures and interviews and debates and uh, something for you to check out at alternativeradio.org. So, Noam, you have a lot to answer for uh, in terms of uh, you know, supporting independent community radio, and thank you for that. My greatest achievement. Well, there's so much to talk about, obviously, but uh, let's start with uh, The Economist, not necessarily a very radical uh, journal. It says in its uh, current issue, there's something in the air. Why are so many countries witnessing mass protests? And then it goes on to to write about uh, all of the countries that have been uh, demonstrating in really unparalleled numbers. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, turning out from Santiago, Chile, to Beirut, Lebanon, uh, to the Sudan, to Hong Kong, uh, Haiti, uh, country after country, Iraq uh, as well. What is prompting this massive upsurge in citizen activism? Well, of course, uh, each country you look at has its own particularities and special reasons. Uh, But there are some common features which were actually captured pretty well by a young demonstrator in uh, Chile uh, whose comment became a slogan for the huge demonstration. He said, it's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years, years. Uh, that's roughly the period of uh, the neoliberal uh, programs that took over much of the world, the United States and other countries. Uh, They've had uh, pretty deleterious effects for the general population, uh, different in different countries. Uh, There's other factors in other countries, but uh, this is uh, common. And uh, what it's led to, we can see very well in the United States. Uh, The United States has uh, one of the more vibrant economies in the modern world, but uh, nevertheless it has, uh, some of you may have uh, seen an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago in the business section uh, saying that the figures look good, but the people are unhappy. Uh, people don't have a majority of the population says they don't have good jobs uh, they live very precarious lives if you look at the statistics behind it about over half the population has a negative net worth meaning debts exceeding assets uh, very little to carry them over if any unexpected development happens accident or anything else Uh, Meanwhile, uh, 0.1% of the population, not 1%, 0.1% have over 20% of the country's wealth, and that's accelerating. Tendencies increased since the Great Recession. Uh, Benefits have declined. The United States is uh, pretty extreme in this respect of all the uh, OECD countries rich countries. It's it's the only one that doesn't have some form of uh, national health care. The result is uh, uh, costs about twice as high as the average and uh, uh, outcomes that are relatively poor. Uh, The uh, discontent is so 
extreme that for the first time in over a century, mortality is increasing, uh, particularly among uh, the basically working age sector of the white population, roughly 25 to 50. Mortality is increasing. That hasn't happened anywhere in a developed society since the huge flu epidemic a century ago. Uh, the, uh, all, uh, and similar things are happening. The con- concentration of wealth and, sta- and the, there's essentially stagnation for the majority of the population. So the purchasing power of real wages today is about what it was in the 1970s before this uh, assault took place. One of the consequences of uh, concentration of wealth is almost automatically uh, increased uh, power of extreme wealth and the corporate sector over the political system. That happens almost automatically. So there's been a decline in functioning democracy. People feel that the government is not responsive to them. They're in fact correct. Uh, They don't have to read uh, political science journals to discover that uh, about 70% of the population is essentially disenfranchised. Uh, That is, if you, the lower 70% in the wealth scale, if you compare their opinions and attitudes, which we know a lot about from polls, with the voting records of their own representatives, there's essentially no correlation. Uh, The representatives are listening to other voices. Uh, The other voices are the donor class for the next election. Somebody's uh, elected to Congress. First thing that he or she has to do is start uh, working on getting funding for the next round. Uh, Representatives may spend five or six hours a day just talking to donors. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, something is happening in their offices. Uh, There's been a huge explosion of lobbyists during this neoliberal period, and they have something to do. They go to the congressional offices, they sit with the staff, the staff are nice people, but they're overwhelmed by the uh, information, true or false, uh, expertise, uh, uh, legal backgrounds, etc., of this mass of lobbyists who pretty much uh, write the legislation which the uh, representative then signs. It's naturally going to have little relation to the uh, people who voted the representative in the office. And this this is felt by people. They know that the government doesn't represent them. It's even in many ways even worse in Europe. In Europe, the where you have the same uh, economic issues expanded by the austerity programs, even worse than here, Uh, the structure of the European Union uh, transfers essential decision-making away from people, national governments, where they have some influence, uh, to uh, unelected bureaucracy in Brussels. The European Commission unelected the International Monetary Fund, uh, the European Central Bank with the German banks looking over their shoulders. And people feel rightly that they just have it. They have no role in the political system. Meanwhile, they're suffering from the economic policies. Meanwhile, great wealth is rapidly accumulating. 
Well, the, one or another variant of this is happening over much of the world, and it has obvious consequences. People get angry, dissatisfied, resentful, uh, uh, begin to despise the more or less centrist institutions that have been running the world during most of their lives. In, uh, in Europe, the centrist parties, the center-left, center-right parties, are basically collapsing. Uh, the Social Democratic Party in Germany, which goes back to the mid-19th century, has virtually disappeared. Christian Democrats are sharply declining. Uh, you're getting a rise in fringe parties. Pretty much the same is happening here. Uh, but because of our political system, the parties keep their names, but they're changing their character in the same way. In fact, uh, there was there's some studies recently of uh, taking a look at the political parties in the Western world, just looking at their political programs and uh, ranking them on a spectrum from what's called left to right. Uh, the Democratic Party here is sort of right in the center. It's with the centrist parties of other countries. The Republican Party is just off the spectrum. Uh, they're ranked alongside uh, fringe parties in Europe, uh, uh, the, the parties that have sort of neo-fascist roots. And, uh, but we have the same breakdown in the the, the most striking feature of the 2016 election was that the center collapsed. Uh, in the, if you look at Republican primaries for the last roughly 15, 20 years, every time a candidate emerged from the base, they were so intolerable to the establishment that they were just crushed by the concentrated power and force of the Republican establishment. Michelle Bachman, uh, Herman Cain, uh, Rick Santorum, and so on. Uh, the big difference in 2016 was they couldn't do it. They got somebody who did arise from the base, and they couldn't destroy it. Uh, in the Democratic Party primaries, there was something similar. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, broke with uh, over a century of American political history by rising up to the point of nomination, might very well have gotten it if it hadn't been for machinations of party managers, without any support from the standard array of funders, those who buy the elections, corporate sector and extreme wealth, uh, with no media support. Uh, that's unheard of in American political history. But it's essentially the same phenomenon it's coming from the population. Uh, Trump came from another part of the population. Uh, but the centrist institutions are going. Well, you look around the world, as I say, you find one or another variant of this. It's like, say, Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon, uh, for one thing, the corruption of the elites is you know, indescribable. One of the main charges of the pri against the prime minister was that he gave, uh, I think, $16 million. Dollars to some South, South African model he was having an affair with. Uh, but And uh, meanwhile, the trash isn't being picked up. Uh, on top of this, there's a confessional system that was imposed by France when they were the colonial power. When they left in the 1940s, they 
made a deal among the Christian uh, Sunni and Shia population about how they apportion governance. There haven't been any polls since then. The Shia are very much underrepresented. And uh, this system really prevents, I mean, formally it's democracy, but it prevents a serious democratic functioning from proceeding. So that's a major issue. Take a look at the next country, you'll find something else. But in this atmosphere of uh, anger, resentment, uh, frustration, uh, contempt for institutions, it's very fertile territory for demagogues to come along and to say, your problem is not the corporate sector and the wealthy and the people who are making the policies. It's somebody who's even more vulnerable than you, uh, immigrants, uh, Muslims, uh, African-Americans, Ronald Reagan's welfare queens. Just look around and find somebody to blame it on. And uh, it's been this pretty good evidence by now, a lot of studies, that the uh, xenophobia and the fury against immigrants and so on tends to follow the uh, economic Uh, the cutbacks in the economic policies that are cutting back uh, benefits, uh, making wages stagnate, and so on and so forth. This is true even in countries like Sweden. Uh, You see a rise in xenophobia and anger, uh, pathological symptoms of various kinds. Almost always it follows after the uh, economic policies that are associated with the whole neoliberal system. That's, uh, and, and I think that's kind of the underlying background for what's happening. When you look at particular countries, you find other things that are building on it. You know. Let me ask you about uh, tactics. Okay, let's say I totally agree with you on the impending environmental catastrophe and how that is being generated by predatory corporate capitalism, etc. But then you find out that uh, I'm against gay marriage. Uh, I'm against reproductive rights. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a misogynist. I'm a, a racist. Are you going to work with me toward a goal, or are we? Or how do you negotiate that? There's just no choice. I mean, we this this matter is so urgent, uh, as is nuclear war that you have to make whatever alliances you can. Okay, actually there was an interesting op-ed article in the New York Times a couple of days ago by a evangelical Christian uh, professor somewhere who was describing the kinds of tactics that she uses and she thinks ought to be used to try to bring the evangelical community to recognizing the importance of uh, doing something urgent about global warming. As you may know, about 80% of them support Trump. Uh, And her proposal was perfectly reasonable. She said, okay, we believe, we all believe that uh, the second coming is not very far off, maybe in our lifetimes. Uh, When Jesus returns to earth, we want to demonstrate to him that we have taken care of God's creation. We haven't destroyed it. We've cared for it. It's in good shape. Uh, Let's approach evangelical Christians that way. 
Is that wrong? I think that's quite right. Uh, whatever you can do has to be done. I mean, it's perfectly true, and many of our friends say, that uh, environmental destruction is simply inherent in the capitalist system of maximizing growth and profit and ignoring externalities. And there's a lot of truth to that, but it doesn't help. Maybe we should work to eliminate this system. But you look at the time scale of making radical social changes in institutions and doing something about the urgent environmental crisis, and the time scales just don't match. Uh, the latter has to dominate. Uh, overcoming the environmental crisis is going to be, have to be done within some form of existing institutions. It doesn't mean that on the side you shouldn't be trying to change them, uh, just as you should be dealing with misogyny. But this overwhelms everything. Uh, it just has to, uh, along with nuclear war, there are plenty of other problems, I should say. Uh, the problem of uh, resistance to uh, the microbes it could be a lethal problem in the not-too-distant future. and uh, Because of global warming. Partly that, but just because of, of their mutations. Uh, say meat production, uh, industrial meat production, it uses, uh, I don't know, maybe half the antibiotics in the country. Uh, that leads to a very rapid uh, evolution of uh, microbes that are resistant uh, to any form of uh, microbial control that we have uh, that's happening in hospitals. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, leading to development of possible plagues that we'll have no way of dealing with. I mean, there may be things coming from global warming, too. So one of the things that nobody knows anything about, but there's fears, is that uh, as the permafrost melts in the Arctic, vast northern regions, uh, first of all, it releases a huge amount of carbon, um, far beyond what's been released so far. Methane. Methane. Methane, but also other just plain carbon. The amount of carbon stored there is fantastic. But also, nobody knows what's down there. There may be bacteria that have been preserved for, you know, eons, uh, for which there's no resistance. Could happen. We're sitting here in Tucson, 60 miles from the Mexican border, and things are going on there that can scarcely be believed, not just there, but all across uh, the country with the setting up of detention camps and the separation of uh, children from their parents. How is the administration in Washington getting aw away with this? I mean, where is the outcry? Where is the indignation and anger? Well, actually, here in Tucson, uh, there is a, a reaction, a, a courageous reaction. P people like the... Uh, no More Deaths Group, for example, and others are reacting properly. And they do have a fair amount of uh, popular support here. But you're true, around the country it's not happening. And we can find out why easily. I don't know how many of you read the uh, online uh, Tucson Sent Sentinel. It's a pretty good newspaper, actually. Uh, they had a report a couple of probably one or two months ago, I guess, very interesting report. Steve Bannon was visiting uh, the area. He was going to a 
luxurious gated community south of Tucson. Uh, and the goal was to raise money to privately build a wall. Of course, the government wasn't doing it. And uh, the uh, reporter got into the meeting somehow and gave a careful description of people's reactions, which were pretty interesting. People in this rich gated community, which is probably the most secure place in the, in the entire world, are terrified. They're afraid that uh, an invasion is coming of uh, rapists, uh, murderers, Islamic terrorists, uh, who are going to carry out uh, genocide against the white race. And they got to do something about it. Uh, one of the people there who's actually a state legislator from, not from here, I think from Colorado or somewhere, suggested that we not only, that Arizona not only build a wall uh, at the border, but also at the California border, because we don't want those people coming here. You know? you know, we can laugh at this, but this is real. People are really frightened and terrified. This is an old story in the United States. It's, it's been the most secure country in the world as far back as you can go until since the War of 1812. But it's probably one of the most frightened countries in the world. It's very easy to arouse the population to fear, extreme fear. That's happened over and over. Uh, in recent years, you'll recall when the propaganda began to try to build up support for the invasion of Iraq. It was effective. Uh, people were afraid we got to stop Saddam before he kills us, you know. Uh, you take a look at international polls, there was almost no support for the invasion. Practically nothing. Barely reached 10% anywhere. The United States, it was real. Uh, when Condoleezza Rice uh, gave that speech about... Uh, the next thing we'll hear from Saddam is a mushroom cloud over New York. People didn't laugh. Uh, when uh, the propaganda every day, you see it every day, about how Iran is the greatest threat to world peace. Uh, uh, they're going to attack us. We've got to prevent them from doing this. Uh, and people don't collapse in laughter. They take it seriously. You take a look at the facts, it's beyond ridicule. You know, uh, but it goes on because people are afraid. Uh, well, the so. techniques of propaganda, simple messages repeated over and over again, lock her up, drain, drain the swamp, build the wall, um, etc. You're listening to Noam Chomsky on Threats to Peace and the Planet, part one of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and the book, Global Discontents by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Well, the techniques of propaganda, simple messages repeated over and over again, lock her up, drain, drain the swamp, build the wall, um, etc. Well, unfortunately, it's true. It goes way back in history. Uh, you can even see the reasons for it. I mean, just take a look at American history. 
the United States is maybe the only country in the world that's been at war almost every year since its founding. People talk these days about endless wars, meaning Afghanistan, but that's kind of misleading. Uh, try to find a year when the United States was not at war, starting in uh, 1783. You know, right away, immediate. Remember, one of the main reasons for the American Revolution, they don't teach this in the schools, but it's clear, is a declaration that was made by King George III, Royal Proclamation in 1763, which uh, banned settlement beyond the Allegheny Mountains, okay, in what was called Indian country. So the Indian nations were to be protected by the British from uh, expansion by the settlers. They weren't having any of that. The colonists wanted to move west. That included huge land speculators like George Washington, one of the biggest speculators, wanted to pick up land in the west. Uh, in, in, in what, the, what was called in the Constitutional Convention, vacant country, meaning the country of the Indian nations. Uh, Washington launched a war against the uh, Iroquois uh, right during the, uh, the war with the British. Uh, it went on. As soon as the as independence was declared, immediately the barrier was gone. The war started against the Indian nations. I don't have to recount the history. I'm sure you know it. But right to the end of the 19th century, there was constant aggression, uh, extermination. It's the word that the founders used, cultural uh, genocide. Finally, the Indian nations were what remained of them were confined to small areas, treaties broken and so on. I don't have to tell you that we're living in what was Mexico, conquered in a war of aggression. Ulysses S. Grant, general president, fought in the war as a junior officer, described it as one of the most wicked wars in history, conquering the southwest and the west. Uh, by the 20th, the U.S. was the late 19th century. The U.S. was already intervening uh, substantially in uh, in the Caribbean and Central America. Uh, by the 20th century, it's just one war after another, almost without a stop. Well, if you're constantly at war with somebody, you tend to be afraid. Maybe they'll come back and do something to us. In addition to that. The United States was, of course, a slave state. Uh, all of the founders, with one exception, John Adams, were slave owners. Uh, the Virginia was the center of power in the early years of the country. Virginia was not only a slave state, it was the producer of slaves. Uh, the leaders in Virginia were in favor of the uh, law banning the slave trade. It was 1808, roughly. They were in favor of that because Virginia was producing a surplus of slaves, more than it could use, and it didn't want wanted them to be sent out to Georgia and Mississippi to the west so they could sell them. So they didn't want the competition from Africa. So they favored the banning of the slave trade. If you take a look at the demography, there were states like 
South Carolina, uh, where these slaves actually outnumbered the uh, the white population. There were slave rebellions right through the 18th century. Haiti terrified the United States. This was the first free country of free men, of course, in the Western Hemisphere. And it was slaves who overthrew the, in that case, French uh, uh, colonial masters. This is the idea that this would have a demonstration effect, which recent years called a domino effect, uh, and inflame slave rebellions here was very serious. So yes, you had to be afraid of them. Uh, that went on. Actually, it never really ended, because after the Civil War, there was a brief period of reconstruction, but then something like slavery was reintroduced in other forms, and you still needed force to control the subject population, and there was always concern that they might react. So I think if you look deep into American history, there are pretty good reasons for the fear. By the 20th century, it had no basis in fact, but uh, it's pretty easy for demagogues to conjure it up to try to divert attention away from the real issues. We're seeing that dramatically as with our current leader. Uh, it's happening in Europe, uh, uh, Orban, uh, Salvini, uh, the rest of this collection of gangsters, uh, constantly stirring up uh, hatred and fear of uh, alleged uh, dangers to try to divert attention from what they're actually doing to their countries. They're not the first in history to invent that, incidentally. When we last uh, talked in late May, you said that if the Democrats move to impeachment, they're going to shoot themselves in the foot. You called impeachment a trap. Well, the Democrats have formally moved on impeachment. Have your views changed in light of recent developments? We don't know for certain. Your guess is as good as mine. But my expectation is uh, uh, that the House will impeach. The Senate will uh, reject it. I doubt very much that you can find enough Republican senators with a bit of principle. They all know that he's, Trump is impeachable a hundred times over. But uh, do they want to face Trump's... Uh, adoring uh, militant base, not many will. So I suspect they'll go along. He'll be freed. He can then make you know, a triumphant speech about how the tribune of the people, the man who's standing up for the common guy, uh, once again overthrew the deep state and the treacherous Democrats and must march on to victory. I suspect that's what will happen. I hope but, I'm wrong. Yeah, there's some similarity with Watergate that you've pointed out. Yeah. Talk about that. That's exactly what I expected from the Miller inquiry. It seemed to me the Democrats were on a suicide mission. Um, it was pretty clear in advance that nothing of any great significance was going to come out of the Miller inquiry. But the uh, liberal Democrats invested so much in hoping that somehow this would save them you know, uh, from the disaster that they had created for themselves, that when it turned out that there was not all that much there, they provided a huge victory to Trump. I mean, if you think about interference, 
Uh, the whole matter is a, it's pretty hard to take seriously. I mean, suppose there was some Russian interference. I mean, it would be almost invisible in comparison to the huge interference of uh, simply buying elections. Uh, there's very extensive and very convincing work showing that electability to the presidency or Congress is very highly predictable from the single variable of campaign spending. Uh, the Thomas Ferguson, a friend of ours, a great political scientist, uh, has been publishing on this for years. He just came out a couple of days ago with a new paper, which is the most uh, very careful analysis of congressional elections over about, I think, 40 years. And the predictability is just incredible. That's massive interference with elections. It's gotten much worse in recent years because of the decisions of the reactionary Supreme Court, but it goes way back. That's why the Sanders achievement was so spectacular. It broke with this. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the face of that kind of interference with elections, which is just the beginning, I should say, because, as I mentioned, during the neoliberal period since the 70s, there's been an enormous expansion of lobbyists uh, who have an, a tremendous impact on uh, on uh, the, the form and the nature of legislation. Uh, this is both at the national level and at the state level. There's a insidious uh, uh, aid, uh, uh, organization, ALEC, uh, American Legislative Exchange Council, which kind of operates quietly, but it has the support of a wide range of the corporate system, really across the board. And what they're doing is quite clever. They're uh, trying to, and succeeding in imposing legislation at the state level. What happens at the state level is very important for people's lives. But people don't know much about it. Uh, most people can't name their state representative in the state legislature. They don't, it's not reported. You don't pay any attention to it. Just something that happens out there. And state legislators are much easier to buy than uh, congressional representatives. It doesn't take much money to win a, a, a state election. So what they're doing is uh, imposing identical legislative programs in states throughout the country to try to turn the country into an ultra-reactionary uh, society at the state level. And that includes, uh, incidentally, Arizona was singled out in one of their campaigns uh, to try to destroy the public education system. They want to do that everywhere. Public education system's just too democratic. Uh, there are many ways to undermine it, like defunding and so on. But they're trying to literally privatize it. And they thought that Arizona would be a kind of a soft spot. Maybe they could ram it through here. Uh, other things they're doing are almost unimaginable. Uh, for example, there's, there's a billions of dollars every year of stolen wages, wage theft it's called. Employers simply don't pay their workers. Or... Uh, if they work overtime, they don't give them what it's due. Uh, 
One of Alec's main programs is to try to prevent even investigation of this, let alone punishment for it. And they do it at the state level, one after another. Uh, one of their most insidious programs is to try to get states to pass, uh, to agree to uh, vote for a constitutional amendment for a balanced budget. You know what that means. A balanced budget at the federal level means you pour money into the Pentagon, you pour money into subsidies for the energy corporations, you cut everything else. That's what's called a balanced budget. If that becomes a constitutional amendment, the effects are horrifying. And they're getting pretty close to the number of states who can do it, all under the radar. Not many people know about it. So all of this is going on at the federal level, at the state level, and we talk about uh, Russians, uh, uh, tiny uh, possible Russian influence somewhere. Um, it's a joke, uh, quite apart from the fact that the U.S. intervenes massively in elections all over the world, uh, perfectly openly, uh, even overthrowing government. Uh, also in Russia, 1996, uh, the Clinton administration very much wanted uh, Boris Yeltsin, their man, uh, to be elected uh, 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 president in Russia. And he was running badly in the polls, but they poured uh, expertise and money into it and managed to win the election for him. It wasn't secret. They were proud of it. I mean, uh, in the face of all of this, for us to be talking about the Russian or Chinese or Cuban or whatever influence in U.S. elections is another sign of this same kind of paranoia that shows up in the gated community when they think they have to be protected from an invasion from across the border. It's, uh, it's, we're not the only country in history where the population has been diluted by massive propaganda. Uh, take, say, Germany. Just think about Germany. It's very striking. In the 1920s, Germany was the absolute peak of Western civilization. In the sciences, in the arts, it was considered the leading political democracy in the world, had a very rich tradition. What was it ten years later? It was the absolute depths of human history. Ten years after that, it's uh, becoming a significant uh, civilized cultural center again. Uh, strange things happen. Uh, we're not immune to them. and have to be frightened about them. Goebbels, who was uh, Hitler's propaganda minister and regarded as a kind of um, you know, brilliant strategist, he said, even though negative things were being said about Hitler and the Nazis, he said, the main thing is they're talking about us. Now, you've described the present occupant of the Oval Office as a narcissistic megalomaniac, which is rather unusual for you. You usually don't uh, label uh, politicians so baldly as that. But all the attention that's being focused on him seems to just energize him even more. Well, it's been, I mean, it's by now pretty well recognized that uh, the major television networks it gave him a tremendous gift in the uh, uh, 16, the last election campaign. 
And they, as you recall, they bragged about it. I think it was the head of Leslie CBS. Monvies, the head of CBS. Yeah. He's the greatest thing that ever happened to our ratings, you know. But it might and, be uh, bad for the country, he said. <laughs> he said, as far as the country goes, Trump may be bad, but as far as CBS goes, it's great terrific. for profits. So they were giving him huge propaganda, and of course he, uh, he relishes that. Uh, he, the Trump administration's doing, you know, the, the, it's, kind of, it's often described as, you know, a kind of fascism, which is a little bit glib. It doesn't rise to the level of fascism. Fascism, remember, had an ideology. The ideology is a state, a powerful state under the control of a, a single party which controls the whole society. It, sets, uh, it controls not only labor, uh, but business and everything else. Uh, we, we're very far from that. We don't have that ideology. Also, it uses force and violence to impose it. But some of the kind of appurtenances of fascism do appear here. One of them is the destruction of the information system. And this is not done just by propaganda. It's, it's done, in a, whether consciously or not, in a very effective way, by just eliminating the notion of truth just flood the information system with massive lies and deceit. Uh, anything that comes to mind when you're, in Trump's case, when he's watching Fox News in the morning and tweets it out, doesn't matter what it is, say anything. And then the fact checkers in the Washington Post uh, will write an article saying you had uh, 83 lies this morning. But it doesn't make any difference because it's, it's cheapening the concept of truth and fact so that people just have no idea what to believe. The fact and truth doesn't exist. It's just uh, it's a, it's a technique of propaganda that's extremely effective and it's working. You know, and, uh, and the effects are lethal. I don't have to tell you that we're facing a major uh, crisis of uh, an environmental catastrophe, and a large part of the population here simply refuses to believe it. After all, their leader tells them every day it's not happening. And they adore their leader, uh, the man who stands up for them, so he claims, well, shafting most of them at every turn. But he's the leader. We have to follow him. He says it's not happening, it's not happening. About... Uh, the last figures I saw, um, I think about uh, a quarter of Republicans regarded uh, global warming as a serious issue. Uh, many don't even believe it's happening. The, if the consequences of that are beyond words. Uh, unless this changes, and changes very soon, uh, we don't have to bother talking about anything else because uh, organized human society will disappear uh, within a short period of time. Uh, that's what we're facing. I should say that there's another existential threat which we all know about in the back of our minds, but again, no, almost no attention is being paid to it. We now have uh, 75 years of living under the threat of nuclear catastrophe. Right now, it's getting 
very serious, much worse than it's been bad enough in the past. It's almost a miracle that we've survived just looking at the record. Now it's escalating. The U.S. is dismantling all of the arms control treaties. Uh, the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, got rid of one of them, uh, the ABM treaty, which is quite important because uh, anti-ballistic missile sounds defensive, but it's well understood that it's basically a first-strike weapon. It's not going to deter a first-strike attack. It could conceivably deter it. Uh, uh, limit a retaliatory strike. So that's gone. Uh, Trump just pulled out of the INF Treaty, the Reagan-Gorbachev Treaty, that, that uh, greatly improved the security situation in Europe and the world by banning short-term missiles. And the Trump administration was planning for this immediately after pulling out of the treaty in early August. Uh, they carried out a test of a missile which violates the treaty, meaning it was already in development and being planned. Uh, it happens to apparently use pretty much the same technology that the Russians have been complaining about in the IBM installations and on their borders. This just was a saying to Putin, please develop weapons that can destroy us. Uh, and the uh, military industry is just celebrating. They're euphoric getting all kinds of fat contracts to develop uh, uh, hypersonic missiles, all sorts of uh, uh, you know, uh, unimaginable lethal weapons against which there's no defense. And they're also planning, if you read their propaganda handouts, that they're planning to, looking forward to the chance to get contracts down the road to try to develop a defense against the weapons they're uh, creating today, which of course others will uh, carry out as other developments too. Uh, right now the Trump administration has indicated that it doesn't plan to sign the New START treaty if it's re-elected. That comes up in shortly after the election. Uh, the New START's the last major treaty. That puts a limit, and it's been very effective. It's sharply reduced the number of uh, missiles and warheads that the United States and Russia have doesn't end the problem, but it reduces it. So they want to get rid of that and uh, open the door to just massive uh, overproduction of uh, missiles and warheads, which threatens survival, of course. Uh, right now, it looks as if they're the John Bolton's last shot before he was kicked out of the administration was to uh, initiate uh, breaking of the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, that was initiated by Eisenhower, who recognized that if Russia and the United States have ways of uh, carrying out surveillance over the other's territory with joint participation, uh, they will be uh, much more safe. Each will be more safe because they'll know if the other is planning some aggressive act. That's been extremely effective. Looks like the Trump administration is going to throw it out, which again raises the threat enormously. Uh, a little while ago, uh, William Perry, former defense secretary, has spent his whole life on nuclear issues, very serious, uh, sober guy, not given to exaggeration, uh, said that he was terrified 
at the rising threat of nuclear war, and he was doubly terrified because nobody was paying attention to it, aside from the arms control community. Actually, we can add something to that. We should be triply terrified by the rising threat, by the lack of attention, barely a word anywhere, and by the fact that it's being conducted by people who know exactly what they're doing. They understand perfectly well that they're sharply increasing the risk of destruction. That's an amazing phenomenon that goes on case after case. Our leaders in the economic, political domain understand exactly what they're doing and race forward to do it even in a more extreme way. You have to ask yourself, what's in people's minds? You know, how, how do you deal with this? You understand exactly what you're doing. It's not a minor thing. It's going to destroy organized human society within a couple of decades. But let's race ahead. You mentioned Gorbachev, who signed that uh, treaty with the INF treaty with Reagan in 1987. He just told the BBC, actually, uh, in answer to the question, uh, how dangerous is the situation, he used the word colossal, colossal danger. And then he added, all nations should declare that nuclear weapons must be destroyed. This is to save ourselves and our planet. Uh, and the idea that this can continue is just madness. Uh, some people, uh, there's been debate among scientists uh, who explore, who are searching for uh, intelligent life in the universe and can't seem to find it. And uh, one of the theories, not in, in jest, but it's not a joke, is that, yeah, there's intelligent life out there, but when they get anywhere near Earth and see the lunatics who are inhabiting it, <laughs> they don't want to come anywhere near us. <laughs> <laughs> that was Noam Chomsky on Threats to Peace and the Planet, part one of a special two-part program. I talked with him at Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona, on November 4th, 2019. The occasion was a celebration of the Progressive Magazine's 110th anniversary. Noam Chomsky is a legendary scholar-activist. He's been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media. And since its inception, AR has featured and archived the work of Noam Chomsky. We have more than 250 recordings of his lectures and interviews. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of the complete two-part program, Noam Chomsky on Threats to Peace and the Planet, and the book, Global Discontents, just call us at one 800 triple four one nine seven seven again that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine 
877-285-9477. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Norman Stockwell, Daniel Libby, and The Progressive Magazine. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.